Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is making his second visit to the programme. He's scientist, journalist and climate change expert Mark Linus, who appeared in one of our early podcasts to talk about his previous book, Six Degrees, which looked at our future on a warming planet. I remember in that book, Mark spoke of our sweaty ape hands on a thermostat of the world's climate, an alarming image of humanity oblivious to the damage it is doing. In Mark's new book, a shift in perspective promotes humanity from sweaty apes to the god species, a creature which, like no other in the Earth's history, completely dominates the planet, to the extent of influencing not just its climate, but all its other critical systems as well. The message of Mark's book is that it's time we faced up to the responsibilities that this dominance brings, and recognise that the Earth has natural boundaries beyond which we cannot push it. Boundaries that set natural limits to our fresh water use and acidification of the oceans, to our greenhouse emissions and the release of toxins. The God Species is a book about learning to live within boundaries, yet it doesn't preach a message of privation and self-denial. In that, and several other ways, it will surprise readers expecting an orthodox dark green message. In the book, and in this interview, Mark talks, for example, about coming to see nuclear power and genetically modified crops as a necessary part of the solution. He also presents a reminder, infrequent in the literature on climate change, that humanity, however willful and short-sighted, is not all bad. When I met Mark in Oxford recently, I began by asking him about the name increasingly given to the geological age in which we live and which we now shape, the Anthropocene. Yes, the Anthropocene is now close to becoming a scientifically validated concept because the International Stratigraphy Commission, which is the geological group who actually determine the names of the all these ages and epochs going back down through geological history is considering whether to formally end the Holocene, so the post ice age last 10,000 years or so, and to declare that the Anthropocene has begun. And that would be the first geological era to be, be one which is dominated by a single species, namely Homo sapiens. So it's anthropogenic scene, i.e. Anthropocene. So it's, it's, it's in a set essence recognising that the, the planet, planetary system is dominated overwhelmingly by, by Homo sapiens and its essential chemical, even geological nature is something which is determined by us both now and into the future. And that clearly is having a, a whole series of negative impacts which your, your book tackles. And I wanted to ask you about this moment of, of revelation, if I can put it that way, when you were at a conference in Sweden, which seems to have set you thinking in a new way about how to address some of the problems that the Anthropocene age presents. Yes, I was lucky enough to be invited to a conference called the Talberg Forum, uh, which is in, in the middle of Sweden by a very pretty lake. And, and it takes place in a bunch of wooden hotels. So it's a very sort of nice, just very relaxed place for all sorts of discussions, not exclusively scientific, but I was, I was lucky enough to be invited to a scientific closed door meeting, which was going on in parallel, uh, which was led by a Swedish scientist called Johan Rockström, who um, is director of the Stockholm Resilience Centre and was also at that time director of the Stockholm Environment Institute. So very well known globally. He's, his, his background is as a hydrologist, actually. And, it, you know, there were, there were some of the 
top scientists in different fields in that you know, Jim Hansen was there doing climate stuff John Foley was there talking about land use and so from a variety of different perspectives there were scientists who were really at the top of their game trying to come up with a list of what the top level ecological planetary ecological concerns might be and the concept that Johan had come up with was of planetary boundaries that there is some limit to perhaps human interference in some of these processes at the planetary level and could that be quantified numerically and could it be determined which the key processes were and they they nailed it down to 10 and then actually it was reduced the following year to nine so there's nine planetary boundaries which the scientific team came up with and I found that it didn't occur to me at the time that this was something useful but it, you know within a, a day or something I realized that this was potentially a, a really really useful way to to divide up the key challenges that humanity faces as as sort of overall planetary engineers in particular so because the planetary boundaries team when they published their paper in nature <clears throat> a year or so later had actually quantified numerically most of the boundaries and saying right this is what the limit should be in terms of numbers whether it's parts per million or the level of acidity in the oceans or whatever and, and actually having that boundary quantified i think is a very new thing for scientists to do and one of your, your the clear messages of your book is it's time to set aside any sort of sense of false modesty about the fact that we are actually in charge of this planet and absolutely determine how its future will be. You say false modesty is a greater risk than hubris. We, we need to really identify ourselves as the God species and begin to tackle these nine challenges. Well, I meant false modesty in the sense that you often hear from climate change deniers this idea that humanity is too small, we can't possibly be affecting something as big as the planetary climate. You know, we're just just us driving in our cars. We can't, you know, and that makes a kind of common sense. And it's also plugs into a much deeper cultural narrative that we've all grown up with, I think, which is partly religious of God being something out there who we have to genuflect to because somebody else, this, this greater being, whether it's the planet or whether it's um, some kind of deity, is in charge of the system. And to turn that around and say that we are in charge of the system is quite a novel thing. Um, you know, because every time there's an earthquake or a tsunami or a volcano or whatever, we always sort of think, oh gosh, you know, isn't, huma isn't humanity humbled by these great overwhelming forces of nature? And in fact, it's the reverse. It's the forces of nature which are humbled by humanity. And I, I think that's be becoming scientifically undeniable, really, in a whole host of different areas. And that's what the planetary boundaries idea tries to capture. Now, you've got a list of nine which includes such things as biodiversity, climate change, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, aerosols, and so on. I imagine it's quite difficult, or there are varying degrees of difficulty in determining what the actual boundaries should be, not least because many of these things are interdependent. Yes, and the interdependency of the different boundaries is actually one of the crucial things, because if we humans are to make decisions about the way forward, then we need to consider that very carefully. For example, the water use boundary is one of the most clearly quantified ones. There's a limit to the amount of water, fresh water on land that humans can impound and, and take away from river systems. But obviously one of the most promising and, and, and most useful sources of renewable energy is hydropower. So big dams are very good in terms of mitigating climate change because you're not then burning carbon-based fuels, but they have disbenefits in terms of the ecology of river systems. And those two things, so there's a biodiversity boundary, there's a water use boundary, and there's a climate change boundary all interacting there. For, for me, that's one of the most important take-home messages because we tend to 
when we make decisions about things, just compartmentalize and say, right, this is a climate decision, therefore we'll build the dam and don't think about the other, the other issues. Um, and and this, this is a real, and I say in the book, this is a real challenge to environmentalists because, again, I think we all compartmentalize. We say, right, we don't want nuclear because it's bad for the environment, therefore we, want, therefore we end up with coal, which is bad for the climate. So, you know, all of these things interact, and I think we, we have to then use the boundaries as a way of prioritizing. Now, you, you come round several times in the book to talking about the polarisation of American politics and how, if you're on the right, climate change denial is almost written into the, the script. How do you think this notion of boundaries will play with the American right, who are clearly a, a significant constituency in, in determining the, the, the fate of the, of the world, given that the word boundary just is, is like a red light, really, isn't it? I object to both sides, really, because the, the, the sort of the green left tends to say there's boundaries, there's ecological limits to what we can do, therefore we have to live very modestly, we have to turn down our thermostats, that whole kind of narrative of, of actually limiting human ambition, if you like. And then on the other side, you've got the, the right, the libertarian right, perhaps, the cornucopian saying there's no limits, we can carry on growing our material consumption forever, and, and you can wish away all these problems. And I think both those perspectives are wrong. There are scientifically definable ecological limits, probably. I mean, this is a work in progress, but probably that's the case. Uh, so, so the green left is right about that. But they do not necessarily present a, a, a limit to, to human prosperity and growth in the sense that that's conventionally defined. So actually, both sides are right and both sides are wrong. And I think there is a, there's a, a much more interesting middle ground which we can navigate. And if we can begin to identify that, hopefully we can start to move away from these very vicious culture wars that we've got between the left and the right on, on on these issues. And I really don't think that environmentalism should be a left-wing concern. I don't think of myself as a left-wing person, yet I'm very concerned about ecological um, sustainability. But, you know, the left-right thing is to do with how much humans share resources between themselves. It's nothing really to do with planetary sustainability. And you're very honest in the book about the fact that you have switched your views quite radically on issues such as nuclear, on genetic engineering, and the role of the market, you know, that the, the solution has to be an entirely integrated capitalist one and that growth need not be a dirty word. Tell me a bit about the, the, the journey that you've taken in order to, to come to that position. Uh, well, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, it's, it, one tries to be a bit self-aware about. Um, I mean, obviously, as a young, uh, my own personal journey is, is that I started off as a, you know, when, when I was younger as an activist, you know, doing doing direct action and, you know, setting up trees and that kind of thing, um, even throwing pies in people's faces. And I guess you just get older and you realise the world's a more complicated place and that, that one's sort of youthful, simplistic solutions don't, don't really cut the mustard. So there's probably that going on. And at the same time, also, you just get better informed. And, you know, when I was a, an activist against GMOs in this country, I hadn't read any of the science, to be honest, on... I didn't really understand genetics. I still don't understand the real complexities of genetics because it's very complicated. But, um, you know, and the more I found out about climate science, the more I realised I needed to apply some sort of scientific objectivity in terms of reading the literature, at least, to, to these other areas as well. And as I did so, I realised it wasn't so scary. And in fact, there were, there were environmental benefits which had previously been neglected. And so the position of just saying GMOs are bad or nuclear are bad is, is not just simplistic, but is actually flat wrong. And so, but it took a long time to come out in the open about that because you know I knew it would be it would be quite a traumatic thing to do. You lose peer group status. You know, if you put this in social terms, um, I've lost friends over it. You know, best friends I've, I've 
no longer because because of these these issues. So so it's not an easy thing to do. But I, I felt in in this book in particular, it was time to completely come off the fence and just put put things very in very clear terms. You made an interesting comparison when you're talking about GMOs. You say you know thinking about the the green left's antipathy to the to the multinationals, the corporations like Monsanto. You say, well, you don't have to love Microsoft in order to use Word, which I thought was a very interesting comparison. And I kind of go along with you a certain way in that. But I suppose the question then is, where is are we going to have Linuxes? Are we going to have strong, independent, less multinational controlled opportunities for using the technology? Well, it's, all, it's actually worse than that. I think it's, it's even more Luddite, the anti-GMO prejudice. It's, it's almost saying everyone has to carry on using typewriters because we don't like the fact that word processing is controlled largely by a single company, which is Microsoft. But, you know, there's no reason to be against a single, uh, an entire technology, an entire method for doing things, or a whole tool, because of particular companies doing particular things. You know, it's not as if Monsanto equals GMO. Um, there's all sorts of really interesting GM technologies being developed in the public sector in developing countries for the benefit of subsistence farmers, looking at subsistence crops and how they can be improved in terms of their yields, which is incredibly important when farmers don't have access to capital for fertilizers, things like that, uh, and also to improve environmental outcomes, so to deal with drought tolerance, heat tolerance, these kinds of things which in a more climate impacted world we've we really got to get a handle on. And we've, remember, we've got to feed 9 billion people probably at much more affluent type diets by 2050. And we need all tools in the box, including GM technologies. That actually is completely obvious. And, and to deny that, I think, is is actually quite absurd. You know, looking back, I can't believe I was really taken in by this. It, it really is a kind of irrational prejudice to be anti-GMO. And, and, and the whole corporate thing, yes, it's there, but, you know, there's so many other areas. I mean, I say to people at talks, okay, get your mobile phone out. Who makes that? This is you know, it's generally a very big corporation. There they are dominating your communications. How can you allow this? The right to talk is a, just as important as the right to eat, you know? But people don't see the parallel. Now, you mentioned there the projected 9 billion population peak. Population, however, is not one of your boundaries. Can you tell me why that is? A population is a driver of impact, but it isn't boundary in an Earth system sense. So these are, these are natural boundaries like biodiversity, climate, ocean acidification, population, technology, consumption. Those are some of the metrics which will affect the achievability or otherwise of the boundaries. It's sort of axiomatic that the fewer people are, the less impact we have, but it depends how people live and how society is organised. So I'm, I'm actually quite relaxed about population, and I don't think that population control, for want of a better word, is, is really an, an issue which should be taken up by environmentalists. Actually, population growth tends to help achieve prosperity. Once you've got prosperity in urbanisation, that tends to produce population growth. So it's actually it's a self-limiting thing, which no other species does, incidentally. So, so simplistically saying, oh, there's too many people. And it, it, it would always tend to be people in developing countries as well. And the people who are most concerned about population tend to be white-haired, elderly gentlemen in the West, in my experience, because population growth is the one thing they can't be blamed for. You know, so I think we've, this is one of one of the areas where we do have to be concerned about the politics, um, and I think it's it's everybody's right to have the family size that they want, but that means they should have access to family planning and they should have have the wherewithal to make those decisions. But it's not for anybody to say that that a wanted child should not be had. How did your or, or did your visit to Chernobyl change your mind about the dangers of nuclear power, or had they already changed by the time you went there? 
No, I mean, this is presented in Channel 4 as a sort of great journey of discovery, but I'd already been talking favourably about nuclear for a, several years before that. I think, I think it, was, it was more important, actually, as a challenge to, to my uh, um, um, views on nuclear to go to Chernobyl and to see, to visit the site of, of the world's worst nuclear accident. Still many times worse than Fukushima. And, you know, and what, I really, what really struck me there was the extent to which biodiversity has benefited ironically from from that because simply because of the removal of the human population it's not that wild plants and animals particularly like radiation and but it doesn't particularly affect them and so nobody i don't think anybody could argue plausibly and scientifically that nuclear waste or radiation or any of the kinds of disbenefits of nuclear power are, are a significant effect on biodiversity because they're not so you know there's many many other things which affect biodiversity negatively so in an all-round sense in terms of land use uh, climate change ocean acidification nuclear wins as one of the if not the most environmentally friendly technology you say in the book that in order to save the tiger it would cost about 82 million pounds 82 million dollars a year and i guess a lot of people might think, well, it would be very sad to lose a tiger. It's, it's obviously a highly symbolic species, but species have throughout history and prehistory gone, become extinct. And maybe in these straitened times, maybe we have to sort of reconcile ourselves to the fact that we are going to lose some species and, and that's not a battle that we should be putting a great deal of resources into. Yeah, I think this is, this is probably more of a moral issue than a, 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 a sort of financial or a practical one. I mean, I don't think ecosystems would collapse worldwide if the tiger did disappear in, in, in the wild. Um, I mean, there's already only a thousand breeding females out there, I think, and many more tigers in zoos. So it's not as if the tiger really has a, a role in, in ecosystems as an apex predator like it used to. And you can say the same for many more species, primarily megafauna, which have already gone extinct and, you know, the world carries on turning. So I don't, I don't think that the the argument that necessarily we're going to see ecological collapse which will affect humans in a practical sense if we don't save these species in the wild holds water you know humans tend to do better actually the more we domesticate the planet's surface we can garden more farm more you know have, have more food and, and whatnot for ourselves so for, for me this is this is much more a moral issue that we sh- that we need to to be guardians of the planet not just for our own species but for others as well the word technofix is a bit of a dirty word for orthodox green thinking, but you you don't believe that it should be. I mean, I suppose that the orthodox thinking is that it's easy to say, well, we'll we'll solve that problem, or we can work on that problem, and it sort of postpones actually having to do something because you think, well, we'll we'll have a technological development which will which will deal with that. But you you believe that technofixes are actually a significant part of the solution. I think they're almost the entire part of the solution. And, in, and I, I mean, even though technofix has is a pejorative word, everybody's actually proposing technofixes, whether it's insulating houses better, which is an acceptable technofix, or, or building nuclear power stations, which is an unacceptable technofix. So I think that whole debate is, is really a bit of a misnomer. But the reason why it's become so loaded is that Many uh, Western Greens, so people who have very high levels of consumption are essentially in the global elite, feel that behavioural change is the way forward and that Technofix somehow runs against that. You know, we need to convince people to, to live in colder houses and to change the, their patterns of, of consumption and travel and so on. I don't think, in practical terms, that's a serious mitigation option. People may get a fad about travelling less or not flying on holiday for a couple of years, but then they give it up, and it doesn't. It's not going to make any difference really to world emissions, which is where the game is at. Now, you were privileged to attend the Copenhagen um, Climate Summit in 2009, and you were one of just a few dozen people at the final meeting, which um, which led up to the um, 
what is it, communique or accord, or um, which was which was put out. What kind of impression did that make on? Did you sort of did you feel dispirited by by what you saw? Because there you were sort of sitting in the presence of Obama and other world leaders, and this was this was the sort of portrayed as the make or break moment, wasn't it? It was portrayed as the make or break moment, but it wasn't. I mean, the um, UN climate change process is a process and it doesn't begin or end in a single year. So perhaps everyone's mistake was to see Copenhagen in, in 2009 as as a crunch point. And it was in terms of the timeline that was established two years earlier in Bali, where there was a two-year roadmap and it was supposed to conclude in Copenhagen, but the fact that it didn't, and Copenhagen was widely seen as a failure, um, you know, we may have lost a couple of years in the in, in the process, but the, those loose ends have been more or less tied up since in Cancun and Durban. So I'm, you know, I don't I don't look back at Copenhagen and feel tremendously depressed by it because the problems that that raised needed to be needed to be dealt with, and, and there were enormous hurdles in terms of the different perspectives of the major parties, which simply could not be got over at Copenhagen, but which have been got over since. So we're in a much more positive space now for, for, for the climate change negotiations than we have been for a long time. It's just that it's it's all taking rather too long. You know, post-Durban, we're, we're looking at a legally binding treaty by 2015, according to the timeline that was established, and f- f- for implementation after 2020. Now, the good news is that this, this will include all the major emitters, so, so India, China and the US, as well as the EU and Russia and, and, and the bigger countries on a parallel footing. So that's a huge, huge improvement on this kind of developed developing country divide, which is increasingly anachronistic. So that's been left to one side. But, you know, we've got 10 years before that happens. So we've, there's a lot to get on with in the meantime. So this next decade has to be a decade of practical action, in my view. I wondered how your own perspective has changed as a result of being an advisor to the government of the Maldives, which are under threat, serious threat of, of inundation. You become sort of practically involved in, in looking for solutions. Yeah, well, the, the president of the Maldives, who I advise, has established that he wants the country to be the world's first carbon neutral nation by a very ambitious timeline by 2020. Uh, and I was asked to to sort of stay on board and, and help not just with that domestic target, but also with with how how the international politics might work out, and to to advise on on that kind of strategy. But in terms of how the Maldives would become carbon neutral, that just made me think more like an engineer and less like a ideologue, if you like, um, because the Maldives is three hundred islands, each of which has its own power station in the form of a diesel generator. I mean, how how can we actually practically? make renewable 100% renewables work on each island how do you deal with marine transport how do you, you know these are all issues of technological substitution there's your techno fix again you know no one's saying to Maldivians who are a developing country use less power even to tourists because tourists come there for a holiday and they don't want to be lectured so I, that's that's out essentially energy efficiency is great if it can save people money but we're not going to see behavioral change in terms of power consumption so how do you substitute renewable forms of power and you know, and that that comes down to to economics. You know, what's what's affordable? It comes down to the technologies. Um, what, what's the most efficient type of solar panel? What's most resistant to to, to the kind of um, conditions you find in the Maldives, and so on and so forth. So it's a it's a very practical, pragmatic um, job to do. And you know, we're, we're, we've got most of the planning now underway, um, and and we're now looking at setting up the first carbon neutral islands within a year or so. Now, you you talked about your own journey from activism and the sort of cream pie in the face and maybe not getting to grips with the science. 
And you said, you know, talked about the faddishness of perhaps not taking a, a foreign holiday on a plane for, for a few years and that not making a lot of difference. So I suppose I wonder, what do you think individuals should and could be doing if they feel they want to do something now in the present context, rather than leave it to, you know, hoping that political leaders will, will make all the running? Well, I mean, we have to make demands at a collective level of our political leadership. Uh, and that's, you know, in the UK, that's been relatively successful. We've got a Climate Change Act. We've now got uh, mandated carbon budgets. And those have come about because of political action by, by, by voters. And that, that is the level for me, which is, which is the most important one. But as, as consumers and as emitters of carbon ourselves, the first thing I've been trying to do is to rehabilitate carbon offsetting. I think it was a huge mistake for the Green Movement to reject it. Um, because people carried on consuming without offsetting and the net effect then is worse for the for the atmosphere and the climate. So given that we all have carried on flying, including myself, and we carry on using electricity uh, and we carry on using heating and, and, and we carry on putting petrol and diesel in our cars and we carry on driving, all those things should be offset. We should try and reduce emissions as much as possible to compensate for that in the short term. And in the longer term, we need to work on our politicians to, to set up a different kind of low carbon infrastructure in our, in our societies. And I think those two things work very much in parallel. Maybe I can ask you in conclusion, Mark, if you could just pick out a few things worldwide which you think are signs of hope, things which you think are taking us in the right direction that can be built on. Well, um, we're looking now, I mean, I don't want to focus too many too much on international meetings, but we've got uh, Rio plus 20 coming up in, in, in the end of June. And that's a chance for world leaders to, to come together and to formulate some some decent targets for what's achievable in terms of sustainability. Um, and I hope that planetary boundaries will be central to that. So I want to see business leaders, heads of, heads of government, take on the planetary boundaries narrative much, much more widely. The Anthropocene is becoming almost a commonly understood term now amongst people who discuss these things. I think that's very positive. I think in terms of the technologies, we're seeing a very rapid increase in, in, in the implementation of renewables worldwide. Uh, China's in the absolute forefront of that, spending hundreds of billions of, of dollars equivalent per year on putting in wind <clears throat> and increasingly solar now as well. But in parallel, they're also developing new nuclear and us in the UK are also are also doing this. So Despite the, the, the accident at Fukushima, nuclear, I think, has, a, has an increasing role to play. And that argument is, is being won gradually, and even in the environmental community. So hopefully we can, we can begin to come together a bit more, leave some of these, these old sort of author- arguments about environmental orthodoxy behind, and work together to, to use the right mix of technologies and politics to, to, get, a, to, to, to get the planetary boundaries as, as metrics which we, which we begin to organise our societies by and judge our own sustainability by. Mark Linus. The God Species is out now in paperback. You can find out more about it, as well as Mark's previous books, and several million other titles besides, by going to blackwell.co.uk. There's a podcast archive there too, of over 150 author interviews. Look for the podcast tab on the home page. That's all for this edition of the Blackwell Podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.